The text that we have before us is James chapter 3. Hear now the very word of God. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. And it is inerrant. James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by so small a fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the whole course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace here this morning, that we would respond to your word. I ask that you would make my words clear and true to your word, and that you would give grace to the hearers. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't it amazing at times when we see how big a difference small things can make? There's the story, perhaps it's apocryphal, of the young Dutch boy, yes, complete with the blue and the tulips and the wooden shoes, who was walking and saw a hole in the dike. And the story is that this little boy with his little finger saved the day by putting a finger in the dike and stopping it from breaking wide open. But it's also true that things have a disproportionate influence for wickedness or grief as well. I'm sure that the man who came with a revolver to a parade that day in 1914 to take out his vengeance on an Austrian Archduke had no idea that when he shot Archduke Ferdinand, that literally tens of millions of men, women, and children would lose their lives as a result of what followed from that. 
You see, sometimes small things make a huge difference. That's also true in spiritual things as well. And we're going to look this morning at a very small thing. It's small physically. The tongue itself is a small member. It's not very big. Smaller than a hand. Smaller than a foot. Or an arm. Or a person. But, unfortunately, it's also small in the minds of most Christians. In terms of the damage that it can do. And so we're going to look this morning at our words and our tongue and what it can do to ourselves and others around us and what we need to do in terms of controlling our tongue by God's grace. So what I would like us to look at, mostly from the book of James, but I've stuck in one verse from Ephesians that's on point. You can do that in a topical series. We're going to look at first, words are important. We'll see that in the first four verses of James. Words are important. Secondly, we'll see that words can tear down. Words are not only important, but they can tear down. But praise be to God, we'll look at the third thing, which is not only can words tear down, but words can build up as well. And then finally, we will see that words are a mirror a mirror of our lives into which we can look. Words are important. Words can tear down. Words can build up. And words are a mirror. Let's look first then that words are important. I want us to see here as James opens the chapter that we see the tongue as a tipping point. The tongue is a tipping point. Now, many of you may have heard this phrase, it's been in the news a lot lately, it's kind of a fashionable word, it started in microbiology to describe what happens when an epidemic reaches the point where you cannot control it anymore. It blows up. When the correct proportion of children get measles in a classroom or a home, and you know just that everybody's going to get it. The tongue can be like that as well. It is a tipping point, oftentimes, in the lives of believers. And so James starts here in what you may think is a very unusual way. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And you may think that I made a mistake in inserting the text into the bulletin. I should have started with verse 2 or verse 3. What do teachers have to do with the tongue and speech? And some commentators view it that way. They don't know what James is doing because they don't take time to delve into the Word of God and to hear that God is seeking to convict us of our sin and encourage us on to love and good deeds. You see, James begins here with teachers for the almost obvious reason that teachers speak and teach and that our words affect others. See, we need to think about that, that words are important, and when we teach others, we affect others. You may not know, a little grammar lesson or linguistic lesson, that the word rabbi, probably you all know that word. You know it means a teacher. Perhaps not many of you know that the word rabbi actually literally means in Hebrew, my great. It doesn't actually even mean teacher. Teacher is implied, my great teacher, the one that I follow, 
The one who has authority. Teachers are important because words are important. You see, James is not saying here, well, you know, when you're asked, when Jerry asks you to volunteer to teach Sunday school, you better tell him no because you don't want the stricter judgment. Because if that were true, then you'd better take a vow of silence and stop talking. But you see, words are important. They're important for parents in the home who teach. They're important for Sunday school teachers when they teach. And yes, they're important for me when I stand up here in the pulpit and teach God's Word. Lest you think you are the only ones being pricked by sermons on sins that entangle. Words are important. We see not only that words are important from teachers, we see the sins of the tongue that come out and how they are important. Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. You see how broad James describes this sin? We all stumble in many ways. All kinds of sin. And everybody sins. Even James. Do you see how he includes it in there? He doesn't say you. He doesn't say you weak Christians. He doesn't say you unbelievers. He says we all sin. There's a great variety of sins. There are many ways in which we sin. And yet, there is one sin that is perhaps the most difficult to contain. That sin is the sin of speaking. You see, James uses very vivid language. He says, but if anyone, if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, then that guy is perfect. You see how he pushes that up in front of us? Now you may say, well, then I guess nobody is because what's the truism? Nobody's perfect, right? But I think what James means here is a little bit more than someone who's always polite and who always knows what Miss Manners would tell him to say. When he means perfect here, he means one who is whole, one who is complete, one who is mature. A perfect man, a mature man, a mature disciple of Jesus Christ is not one who's memorized his Bible from cover to cover, not one who can beat the best of them at theology, not one who can do more service projects in a week than anyone else. The mature Christian is the one who knows how to guard what he says. That's pretty important then, isn't it? Because I've just fired off a whole bunch of things that are very important in the Christian life. And James says, knowing what we say and how we don't stumble in what we say shows whether we're mature or not. You see, this is so important and so difficult that David knows he has absolutely no chance of doing it on his own. His heart's cry should be yours and mine. In Psalm 141, verse 3, where he says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. He basically says, God, I need your help to keep my mouth shut when it should be shut. And open when it should be open. I can't do it but by your power, O oh Lord. You see, words are important. Some of us are old enough to remember the ads. Everyone knows the phrase, what? Loose lips sink ships. Now, if you think about talking as destroying huge vessels, think about 
the destruction in lives and souls that words can cause. Well, word, words are important not only because the tongue is a tipping point, but also because it is a, it is a tiny trailblazer. A tiny trailblazer. You see, the tongue leads to other sins. There's almost a chain of sin that shows up like this. Words lead to an attitude, which leads to actions. You know, you say bad things all the time. It's not surprising that people notice you have a bad attitude. And then it isn't surprising when you start to do bad things. Complainers have a bad attitude, and they seek to act out on their complaints. That's a 10-second history of the people of Israel during 40 years in the wilderness. Complaining, bad attitude, bad actions, and rebellion. You see, the tongue leads us on to this. It is important and it is critical. Now, this is not name it and claim it theology, but rather we need to realize that what we say affects our attitudes and our actions. Words do not control our being. You can't make yourself rich by walking around saying, I am rich, I am rich, I'm rich. But the way we say things and the way we express ourselves put ourselves out to others. And it affects the way we view ourselves. But James also has the positive in mind as well, and that is that the tongue can be a focus point of our sanctification. It can be a tiny trailblazer in that respect as well. Do you see what he says here in verse 3? He says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. You see, one who controls his speech controls his whole body. Have you ever watched, maybe it's in the Olympics, maybe it's a friend. I'll give you the vivid image. Ever watched a small preteen or teen girl on a massive horse? And she's in complete control of where the horse is going and what the horse is doing. Because she knows how to use the bit and bridle. It's not her size or strength or the horse's size or strength. It's the bit and bridle in the mouth that causes the control. So it is with our speech. You see, James says that all sorts of animals can be made useful. They can be made useful by being controlled by their mouth. Obviously, he's using an image there. You don't want to walk around and put bits and bridles in your children's mouths as much as you might desire to on some days. But the point is, is that we control our lives in large measure through our mouths. He gives another image, that of a ship. Now think about this. What he says is not only that the ship is huge and it's controlled by the rudder, but he says you would think that those really strong winds would control where the ship goes. You know, winds blowing east, you got to go east. He says no. It's the governor at the rudder. He may want to go south. Just turns the rudder. He may want to go west. You might have to tack if you're wind-powered. But you can actually sail against the wind. They had to do it all the time during the 17th and 18th centuries. You see, the power of such a small thing to have such a big effect shows us that words are important. Words are important also because words tear down. Look at verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest 
is set ablaze by how small a fire. Do you see, James is describing here that words ability to tear down is completely out of proportion. It is out of proportion to the size of the tongue. He says, don't be fooled by the size of the member that's sinning. Don't say, well, I don't have to worry about my tongue because it's not my arm that can hit and hurt someone. Or my foot that could kick someone. Or my hands that could choke someone. No. He says, don't be fooled by the size. Isn't this something that we realize all the time? That our words can spread hate or love. Our words can give hope or they can give despair. Our words can spread confusion or our words can explain. You see, directly out of completely out of proportional to their size, our words can affect. And that is why, kids, I need to tell you that whoever made up the rhyme, sticks and stones can, hurt, can break my bones, but words can never hurt me, is a complete liar. And you know it, don't you? You don't need to be a grandpa to know that words hurt, do you? You can be very small and know that when someone says bad things about you, oftentimes it hurts worse than if they had hit you. You see, words tear down out of proportion. There is a great capacity for sin in our words. Look at the words that James uses to make this clear to us. He says the tongue is a fire. It is a world of iniquity. It is something that is completely blown up. Isn't this true in our family lives? Moms and dads, what really gets the situation out of control at home? If your house is like my house, and like my house was when I lived in it when I was a child, it's words between siblings. Comments back and forth. Raise the anger level. Lead to hitting and pushing and shoving. And statements that we immediately regret. Words are also what destroy marriages. Things said in anger. Things said intended to hurt. Simply because I'm going to get him now. I'm going to show her. And immediately we regret. But the damage is lasting and real and painful. You see, words have a great capacity for sin. They also have a great capacity for good, as we'll see in a moment. Do you want to attempt great things for God? Then you can start right now by going to the Lord. And asking his help to give you speech seasoned with grace. You don't need to go off to India and give your life as a missionary for the rest of your life. You can do that. That would be wonderful. But you can also start simply by seeking to control your speech. So little a thing. So big an effect out of proportion. It's not only that sins of the tongue are out of proportion. They are completely out of control. You see, again, the analogy that James... You knew James is a pastor because he's giving you illustrations over and over and over again. Now he says, now I want you to picture all kinds of animals. They've been tamed. Yes, you would not believe what the Romans tamed to bring into the Colosseum. Alligators, ostriches, tigers, lions, elephants... All sorts of things. Well, you don't even need to believe that. You've been to a circus, right? 
You've seen these large, fierce animals. He says, the problem, though, is the tongue can't be tamed. Even when we think we've tamed it, it sometimes can be like the lion in the Siegfried and Roy show. Where we think it's tamed, but it leashes out and it attacks. You see, no one can tame the tongue, James says. Well, actually, he doesn't say that. He says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is, no human being can tame the tongue, verse 8. Why would James say that? Well, if you remember our journey through 1 Peter, you remember that 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says, verse 22, about Jesus Christ, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. You see, there is one that can tame the tongue. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. And his power is such that not only is he in complete control of his own tongue, he can tame your tongue by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can say no to sin and to sin of the tongue, by the power of the grace of God in your life. Words tear down. There's great destruction. Just think about the one little spark of fire and what it can do to an entire forest of massive redwood trees. Smokey the Bear knows. That's why he tells you, always remember, Dump a bucket of water over your fire, right? Because even the smallest ember, it's not even a flame anymore, Smokey tells us, right? It's not even a fire properly. There's not even sparks, it's just smoldering. It can destroy acres and acres and acres of majestic, thick, huge trees. This is the destruction that the tongue can bring. And it can not only be destructive to others around us, it can be destructive to ourselves. You see, in verse 8, James says, it is a restless evil. That word for restless is the same word for unstable that James uses in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, a man who is not driven by faith is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. You see, a tongue that is out of control is the sign of a man or a woman or a child who is unstable, and who is not being driven and guided by faith. Words can tear down. But the good news is that words can also build up. Words can build up. We see that in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, words can build up because they can be a source of strength. Our words can be a source of strength to others. You see, our speech is not to be corrupt. Now, when I say corrupt, you immediately think of four-letter words, words printed in a book with asterisks or funny slash signs. You think of words that you don't say in polite company, or words you don't say in front of ladies. 
You might even think, as I was well reminded this week, of words that are used to mask these corrupt words. Using words like darn, which doesn't mean to stitch a sock. It's used instead of another word. Those are called minced oaths. That's, I know I can't say this, so I'll say something that's close to it, so I can get away with it. Those are corrupt, and we know they are, but you see what I think Paul also is getting at in corrupt words is those words that are corrupt, like some of the fence boards that you all have replaced in these past few weeks. You know those ones, the ones that got knocked over, that even if you wanted to try and recycle some of the fence posts, there was no way you could? Those kind of fence boards that me with my bench press of 15 pounds could take and snap because they're rotted on the inside, there's no strength to them. Those are the kinds of words that Paul wants us to avoid using because he wants our words to be words that are like milk for kids, building strong, healthy bones. Strengthening families, strengthening marriages, strengthening churches, strengthening societies. Good words. You see, our speech is not to be corrupt, but it is rather to build up. What would you think of a man in a lifeboat with a small hole in it, and he's bailing, and his buddy next to him taking his bucket, dipping it in the ocean, dumping it in a boat? What would you think of that? It's foolish. First of all, it's completely contrary to what we're supposed to do. Secondly, he's counteracting the good work that's being done. And thirdly, he's putting himself in a heap of trouble when the boat sinks. You see, that's what it's like when we use corrupt, bad speech instead of good speech. Our speech should be bailing out the boat. Our speech should be putting the finger in the dike. Our speech should be building up and strengthening families and lives and relationships. We should seek, when someone says something wicked to us, to find a way to speak to repair the breach in the relationship, even if we did not make it. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't help you to stand near a broke dam and say, well, I didn't put the hole in the dam while the water rushes in and carries you away. Good speech builds up. Is that what you are like at work? Are you known as a Christian because you build people up at work? Or are you a terror downer at work? Around the coffee pot, do you find ways to tear down your coworkers? Or do you pick them up? Do you encourage people? And I don't mean happy, clappy, say, you know, have a great day, and that's all you're good for. I mean, do you give substantive good speech describing how the Lord's been good to you, how He's been good to others around you, how He's blessed families that you know, how He's strengthened your marriage, how you've seen benefits and blessings in others. This is what we need to do. We need to build up. Or are you a constant complainer? I will tell you that I struggle with that. I struggle with complaining. Because things get difficult, and especially when we're busy, and we have lots of things to do, and lots of important tasks in front of us, and that doesn't mean that you just need to be at work, fellas. That is the description of a mom with more than one kid. And oftentimes it's the description of a mom even with one kid, trying to keep track, especially of a young child. 
And you see, the temptation is to complain and to moan so that others will walk up to us and say, Oh, it's okay, you're so wonderful. Because we want to be built up in our flesh. And that doesn't come, you've heard me say this before, that doesn't come because you're Italian and you shoot off at the mouth. And that doesn't come because you have a natural bent toward being a hothead. Because you know what? There's no cure for being Italian. Not that I would want one. There's no cure for being a hothead by nature. But there is a cure for sin. It's called repentance and the blood of Christ. Does that give you hope? Does that excite you? That you can conquer complaining in your own life because of the power of the Holy Spirit. It should. Our words can build up not only as a source of strength, but they are also a source of grace. That may be surprising to you, but look at what Paul says. He says, build up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, your words can be words of grace to others who hear. Now, this does not mean being nice-nice all the time. Okay? It doesn't mean having a permanent smile affixed to your face. And saying, no matter what's there, that's the most wonderful color I've ever seen in my life. At least the last 30 seconds. Oh, that's so wonderful that you do that. What a wonderful opinion that is. Although I would never do it. You know, it's not about fake niceness. Because you see, words that build up can be tough words. I watched last evening a video on YouTube that I'm going to put up on our website this week. I'd encourage you to watch it. It is a video testimony in Australia of a 31-year-old woman who survived a saline abortion. Her name is Gianna Jessen. And her words were hard words. Her words were words that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable in your seat, even though you be pro-life. And she said, I'm not here to make you comfortable. And she said it in a pleasant tone and with no vindictiveness. She said, but I need to tell you about the difference that Jesus Christ makes. And I need to tell you what's going on. So that you can want to make a difference in this. Hard words, tough words, words that would not be considered polite on most of the talk shows. But they were words of grace and of building up. You see, but it's also not enough just to give the rough truth. It's words of grace. And although on rare occasions it can be, generally speaking, grace is not a sledgehammer in the hand of the believer. God and the Holy Spirit can use that sledgehammer on us. But I don't think often God gives us carte blanche to pick up a sledgehammer and whack people in the foreheads because we say, we're doing the work of grace. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to realize the frame that others have. We need to be concerned that what we say even is not so much only about the truth, but about the effect that the truth has. Because you see, truth itself is not a concept. It is not a platonic philosophical being. Truth itself is God. It is a person. Truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. And truth always has consequences. And truth is there to have an effect, not just simply to exist. Well, we've seen that words are important. We've seen words tear down and words build up. 
Finally, I'd like to challenge you by thinking about words are a mirror. Verses 9 through 12 back in James. He says, with our tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And then you can almost hear the pastor, my brothers, this ought not to be so. Please, do you see what you're doing? Words are a mirror. Well, then the first question that comes to you as a challenge is, what does the mirror show if words are a mirror? Now, we rightly understand that the heart is the heart of the matter. Anyone that has ever received an email from me knows this quote, or at least they can find it in their email account. From J.C. Ryle, the heart is the main thing in true religion. It is the hinge and turning point in the condition of man's soul. If the heart is alive to God and quickened by the Spirit, the man is a living Christian. So the heart is the heart of the matter. But we can't lose sight of what our Lord says in Matthew 22. That it is out of the heart that what? The mouth speaks. Our words are a testimony to the state of our heart. You know that phrase, out of the heart. How out of the heart the mouth speaks. Do you remember the context? Verse 33. Either make the tree good or its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So he's talking about the state of our hearts and what comes out of our mouth. And then he says something that is absolutely frightening. This should scare you to the bone unless you are covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every word. And you notice what he says? He doesn't say every prepared speech drafted and practiced. Because there's a difference between speaking and giving a speech, right? Kids in speech class? We've got to work on that for a little bit, don't we? He says every careless word, that flippant word that you just throw out and put a dagger into someone, and then you say later, oh, I'm sorry, I was hungry and I wasn't feeling well. Every word we have to give account for. You see, that's a mirror of the state of our heart. And if we truly are born again with new hearts, renewed by the grace of the Holy Spirit, then we should desire to see our speech reflect more and more a heart that is looking like Christ. The question then comes, as you look in the mirror and you see these things, is this what you want others to see? Or is it something that you seek by God's grace, to become sanctified on. Finally then, if we see what the mirror shows, then what does the mirror indicate? What does the mirror indicate? Is there hypocrisy in what you say and what you say you believe? You see, James has hard words. He says, you know, we don't expect that kind of hypocrisy in nature. Y'all don't go out to the ocean and expect to get sweet water. You know it's salt water. You don't go down 
to the fig tree and expect it to bear olives, or the olive tree and expect it to bear figs. So he challenges you, and he challenges me, and he says, you need to have fruit in your life that shows the root of the change of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at it in that perspective, idle gossip in the church is not no big deal, at least they're not sleeping around. At least they're not taking money out of the treasury box. Idle gossip is wickedness that we need to repent of and carve out of our midst so that we can do great things for God. Maybe for you, there is no hypocrisy. Maybe your speech comes out harsh because your heart is harsh. And then what you need is not a lesson in etiquette manners or speech. You don't need to get the ums and the ahs out of your talk. You need a new heart to get new speech. You need the Lord Jesus Christ to change your very being, to make you a sweet water fountain, to make you a fig-bearing tree. That's what you need. Do you want to honor God, Christian? I leave you with this thought. If you want to honor God, you only need to go back about two chapters in James. James is a seasoned minister, pastor. He knows right where we need poking. Chapter 1, verse 26. He says, if anyone, anyone, thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. And you know what? This person's religion is worthless. Worthless. If you want to honor God, you need to honor Him in your prayer life. You need to honor Him in your study of the Scriptures. You need to honor Him in your commitment to faithfulness in marriage. But Christian, you need to honor Him with your tongue. This is not an optional higher grade of Christianity. It's a sin that entangles us if you are sitting here saying, that sin affects me, then you know that everyone else here should be raising their hand and saying, Amen, including the pastor. These sins are sins we're talking about because they affect all of us. They're so easy to fall into. And we need to be reminded that that doesn't make them unimportant. And we need to be reminded that the answer for those sins is the same answer as that of gross murder and immorality. The answer is Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have so blessed us with this, your word, reminding us that we need to put the sin in our life to death. Oh, Lord, please equip us. Please empower us by your Holy Spirit. Rain down grace in our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.